Welcome to episode 5 of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. This episode was taped July 11th and will be presented in five parts. You are listening to part 1. Welcome everyone to episode 5 of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. We have uh, just finished posting episode one, which appeared in four parts, and we're here taping episode five, so you know there's more to come, and I will get busy editing and uploading those soon. James, thank you for calling today. I think we have... You're welcome. Yeah, we have some good things to talk about. Uh, Your interview with Kevin Michael Grace is receiving uh, warm praise on Twitter and on YouTube. Would you like me to read you some of the tweets that you have received? Yes. <laughs> All right. I'll read from Bumbling American. Bumbling American says, Another absolutely terrific episode of Two Kevins, The Abyss of Baltimore and How We're All Staring Into It. I like that. I think it's accurate. I think so, too. I think that, you know, we talk about that you're a prophet from the future. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we have to see what's coming. Um, here's one from Wildgraph on Twitter. Great interview with excellent but unknown American writer. So maybe you'll be a little bit less unknown soon here. Uh, that's making me kind of nervous. <laughs> you know, I uh, I don't want my roommate's house to get burned down. So uh, my relative anonymity has uh, saved him thus far. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I think that maybe this new exposure is, um, I don't know, it's mostly towards the right at this point, mostly supporters. I haven't seen... Uh, any kind of hate coming out yet, but I'm sure it will follow. (laughs) (laughs) Here we have from the hard right Twitter handle. uh, James LaFond is an outstanding podcast guest. Absolutely fascinating. I could listen to him talk for hours. That's a good one. That's very kind. It's very kind. And he's lucky because you can talk for hours. Yes, one of my flaws. <laughs> no, it's, I think. It's, when you spend your life with idiots and you never really have anybody to talk to, well, once you run into somebody with a brain and a set of ears, it's, it's kind of hard to keep quiet. I was going to say that I kind of detected a little bit of that because you're kind of enthusiastic to do these these podcast calls. And I know how busy you are, and so I thought maybe that you're getting a little therapy out of this or something like that. It, when I do a call, I always feel more energized for writing afterwards. Oh. I thought it would tire me out because I've, I've never really felt comfortable talking to more than one person, but 
this hasn't bothered me the way I thought it would. I guess because I'm not in front of a group of people. I'm just talking to one person, and then other people are, are listening to it later. I guess that's how that yeah. works. It's kind of a combo feeling because you, you know that people are going to listen, but they're not listening right now, so we can just chat. Um. Katie McHugh. Katie Katie McHugh writes. She this is a she's a journalist that was the last interview that Kevin Michael Grace did right before your interview. I saw her interview. Yeah. So that's the brown hair and she has huge eyes. She's yeah, real, pretty real, girl. Real big dark eyes. Yes. Yeah. And she says this is one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever heard. Please do a follow up. She says to Kevin Michael Grace. And you had a comment this morning that you thought she should interview Big Ron. <laughs> Absolutely. I, th I think Ron would like that. If she thinks I'm interesting, I'm sure she'll think he's interesting. I, I think he could make uh, Katie feel much better about her recent misfortune with getting fired from Breitbart. Um, Ron's very good at helping girls get over rough spots in their life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> knows just what to what to say i guess <laughs> i'm trying to help you out ron <laughs> does ron listen has he listened to the podcasts yes yeah yes he likes them and then in response to katie jay rocker which i think he's he's trying to use the avatar of john rocker who was that baseball player that got in trouble years and years ago for talking about the the New York City subway. Do you remember that story? No, I don't. He said that writing... Sorry, John Rocker was a baseball player and he was quoted in an interview saying that uh, riding the subway in New York City is like being in Beirut and he kind of talked about the different characters in there, foreigners and single moms and things like that and he got in big trouble for uh, being insensitive. But that was a long time ago. Oh. Okay. I, I didn't didn't realize that a uh, baseball player had done that. Yeah, it was years ago. So anyway, and please excuse me, but I'm going to use some coarse language here. Jay Rocker writes, LaFond is like a Tarantino character if Tarantino were a shitlord. <laughs> I, I love that. Now, I'm not quite sure what a shitlord is, but if it, I, I've heard it referred to as the president of the Philippines that used to be the mayor, he lets people throw drug dealers out of helicopters yeah. and stuff. Uh, is is that the definition of a shit word there? It or is. Or has it just been? It's part of it. There? I and I I did read a little bit about this because I thought this would come up. Um, and by the way, I drove behind a truck today that had a bumper sticker that said "Kill your local tr drug dealer," which I've never seen. That. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the, this is this is the heart of the Bay Area where I live, San Francisco Bay Area. Pretty bold statement, but this this person, um, which is called a shitlord, I don't like saying it, um, but he, this is a person who is identified online as a person who might be um, racist or misogynist or homophobic or some of these other awful things that, uh, and, and is unafraid of expressing his thoughts online. 
So I don't want to tar you with any of those titles, but I think you are unafraid of expressing yourself online and you could be perceived by some of those those uh, words if if people are inclined to to think that I, way. I am terminally misogynistic. I do not trust women. So so that's correct. I'm uh, not embarrassed or guilty uh, about being born Caucasian. So that does make me a racist by today's definition. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I even reproduce. <laughs> so I, I, I followed a Caucasian child. Um, and I adopted another one, so I'm definitely a racist. So I guess that, that could apply to me. But you need to have some power. I don't have the Lord part. Uh, well, no, I think you do. I think that it's the power that you have online with your publishing and, and your the reach that you have to spread your hateful ideas. Oh, oh okay. Okay, then I'm a shit word. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I feel better. And the thing that a shitlord does is called shit posting. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> All right. So I have a high fiber diet as a, as one of these people, correct? That's, yeah. Because and you well, so you definitely that. have the frequency, you know, that you're posting all day long or posting large, large quantities, and then, it. I don't think what you do is really that because you have pretty high quality and well thought out articles. I think it once in a while you do throw something out there that you know is just going to get people riled up and that's that's what a shit post is, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. But I welcome readers or listeners to comment write in and comment and and give me something to read out during a podcast if it's going to be good. You can you can correct me on that. I'm not an expert. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to be uh, in that category after you've explained it to me. I thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that you feel good about that. <laughs> um, so do you have anything else? Any other comments? We, oh, we saw, I don't know if people saw that Kevin Steele wrote a little blog post about our, um, our technical difficulties, and he really doesn't know the half of it. But I don't want to get—I don't want to get into the technical. Well, he—I I thought it was a nice piece he wrote, and he—he um, he felt bad about possibly trashing my computer. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, uh, you know, the computer's old, so. Yeah. But I just want to tell listeners that here we are, we're taping episode five of only just finished posting episode one. And this isn't something I've ever done before. I really, the minimal competency that I have is from getting James ready to do the Kevin Michael Grace interview. So I'm absolutely amateur. And please forgive me if these uh, podcasts sound totally goofy, but I think we'll get better at them and they're, they're fun to do. Um, but they do take a little bit of time. So bear that in mind. So do you have any other feedback from the interview that you might want to share? Well, we got a couple of 
more readers that purchased some some ebooks uh, from the site, and um, there was um, the the one book we discussed when your food we sold some of those also in print. So oh, some of the people uh, went and bought a few things, and they'll get to find out that uh, what they thought was outrageous on the podcast is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're, they're buying when your food. Uh, yeah, that was, I think most of that book was pretty insane. It was, yeah. Um, and I read that book recently, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but that's something we can probably get into for our next call because I okay. highlighted stuff all over that book, and uh, I'm sure you have, you could expand on some of the things that you talked about in there. Thank you for listening to part one of episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. Welcome to episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. This episode was taped July 11th and will be presented in five parts. You are listening to part two. Yeah, in some ways, I envision Taboo You as a sequel to Win Your Food, but it, it isn't really. I, I went in three different directions with what I was doing with When Your Food. So there's really three sequels to When Your Food, uh, Waking Up in Indian Country, Thriving in Bad Places, and Taboo You. So it's uh, looking at different aspects of uh, the fact that we're socially engineered to be devoured by this soul-crushing machine called civilization. We'll definitely get into those. Today, I wanted to talk about this news piece that uh, Steve Saylor put up. He put put up this story that was reported in San Francisco. We have this uh, train system here. It's called Bay Area Rapid Transit, so it's just called BART. On one side of it is Oakland, which resembles Baltimore demographically. So this really well-reported story, it's kind of shocking because this is something that doesn't really get revealed very often um, but we've had three incidents going back to April where with this kind of mob assault where the young oppressed youths get on the train in large groups and start doing some robberies and some beatings and this kind of thing and then very quickly they they all vanish and it's all it's all happening around the Coliseum stop Bart has surveillance video like any transit district, uh, but they refuse to turn over the su surveillance video for any of these three incidents. I'm reading a little bit here from the article. The quote is, to release these videos would create a high level of racially insensitive commentary towards the district. <laughs> and in addition, it would create a racial bias in the riders against minorities on the trains. So, oh, this is great. Yeah, so oh, this I is a, if what we call, what the shit posters call a logic trap. You can't say you're trying to prevent a stereotype. You just created a stereotype, didn't you? Or you just confirmed the stereotype. Well, th that's that's not important. What, what's really important is that you have this, uh, first of all, you have a higher level of literacy uh, in Oakland because you have an acronym that can be pronounced as a word. You have BART, 
in Baltimore, we have the MTA because our people have to sound out every letter. So you don't get this cool acronym like that. Mm. The, the, the really important thing is that these, uh, these downtrodden people from Oakland have the opportunity to access soft, available game to prey upon. And I think if your objective is to affect a call of the soft game, why give them a heads up? Zebras uh, warn each other, but most of the other herd animals don't. I I, I think this is good. I think the, uh, I feel sorry for the Chinese people, but there's a lot of them. They'll they'll replace they'll replace their numbers. They'll replenish them with with more immigration. Uh, but the other people, the the white liberals, I think it should be a national sport to hunt hipsters and yuppies. Uh, <laughs> I, I just think I, – I wish I could do it. I wish I could get away with doing it, but I can't. <laughs> you would be too effective. Well, it, it's – there's a, a problem with, with uh, pale faces like me hunting people. The authorities come down on that. Uh, they, uh, they want the other people to have all the fun. So I have to step aside. I can't go, go hunt these hipsters. And it really is heartbreaking, but I'm hoping for a total breakdown <laughs> of social cohesion when a dollar crashes, and I'll get to see these white people in our neighborhood that have Black Lives Matter posters <laughs> on their lawn. I can see them getting raped and beaten in their front yard. That'll just be great. <laughs> <laughs> Big Ron and I already decided we're going to drink beer when that happens. We're going to go out on the porch and watch the, uh, watch the helpless pale faces get mowed down. Yeah. Well, Uncle... Uncle Charlie, Charles Darwin, is mm -hmm. watching, and he's happy. <laughs> I, think this, I think this is good. Yeah. The, um, the mass transit thing here in Baltimore is really fascinating what happened. Uh, they've expanded the service. It's going to be much, much easier to uh, get mugged uh, changing the bus now. We have these bus lines looping around North Avenue. Anybody from Baltimore can tell you North Avenue is the place not to be for its entire length. Mm. It's this really blighted ghetto. And numerous uh, bus lines are looping there. So they're, they're starting to make transit stops right in the middle of the ghetto. It's great. It's going to give those people access for um, uh, hunting more affluent prey. Mm-hmm. And it's going to permit um, new people that are coming into town, our replacements. Uh, this bus line, I thought they were reorganizing this to make up for the lost bus traffic because the locals aren't taking it as much. They completely changed it, so it made more sense, and they changed all the numbers. They normally wouldn't do that. They changed all the numbers so it's not this evolved system, so it's, it's just planned. It's going to be simpler for people just moving to town to pick up on it. So this is this system is set up to uh, permit our replacements to get around town more easily and for the hood rats to have better hunting. I think it's a good thing. Now, the uh, MTA is very concerned about your smartphone or other electronic devices. The uh, It's a female voice, and the statement starts out with, Thieves are on the hunt for your electronic device. Mm. So, 
So that they, it, this woman advises, this computer woman advises you not to have your electronic device out so that people might see it, and uh, particularly not at transit points or at the opening of the bus. So they're telling you that there's a lot of this stuff going on where that major transit hubs, people are just getting attacked, and their smartphones are being taken. The main reason why the smartphones are being taken is so they can't call for help. All right. Yeah, you know, there is a hustle where they can make some money on it, but it's it's mainly uh, self-defense. So if you can read between the lines, the the authorities do let the more intelligent among us know that we are being hunted, and yeah, the deluded idiots can just get hunted. So I, I think it's a good system. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, that reminds me, the last time I was on the Caltrain, which is another mass transit system that we have here, uh, people were holding holding up their iPads, their huge iPads, and playing video games on them. And there's really nothing easier to snatch out of your hands than a giant screen while you're very concentrated on your video game. So I was shocked by that. That was a few years ago. But you should tell your hood rats that there's easy pickings out here. <laughs> It is, it is good to hear. Mm-hmm. And the um, uh, the news next year is going to have somebody being killed over this. Mm. Yeah. I, th- I think it's I think it's definitely going to escalate to that. Now, last year, this time last year, there there was one week where there were five knife attacks. Just in Essex, which is a precinct in Baltimore County, that was unheard of. And the little local newspaper that covered it, they stopped covering they, for a while. They just stopped the police blotter. They 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 just stopped reporting it mm. because it it just looked too bad. Yeah. So I'm really uh, impressed that your people out there have. Uh, um, have come out and said it. I am too. It's pretty shocking. And I think that it may indicate some change in attitudes or some, I want to say like a, maybe a little more courage among people who are not afraid of, of or people who are, are getting a little bit less afraid of just saying what they, what they see and what they, what is how it has become obvious to a lot of people. I think there's some change in the culture going on. Oh, I, I wouldn't be too, too quick to give people credit for, for courage in this society. Uh, the, the person who broadcast that, we might very well find out that they no longer have a job. You might want to look into that. Uh, and if that happens, then uh, the upwelling of courage will pretty much stop. That's yeah, <laughs> true. Area of the media. It, it depends on uh, whether or not it was noticed. It would be really fascinating to find out if this was something that was decided by committee and it wasn't just somebody um, making this one report 
and this being the only time it's going to happen before it's addressed like a leak situation. All right. It, it had to make it across some editor's desk and, and say, yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we're going to run it. But well, it's worth good keeping, for them. Yeah, it's worth keeping good an eye on this. It was Melissa Can who reported it in the um, CBS station of San Francisco, KPIX. Ooh. So we'll keep keep an eye. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So see if she got a job next week. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> she could be out like Katie McHugh. She lost her job for making some comment, some racial comment. Oh, it was about if there were no Muslims in in London, then these attacks wouldn't be happening. Something to that effect. Yeah. And it was really shocking because she got fired from Breitbart for that, which is supposed to be a more courageous news outlet. And I thought that was pretty disappointing. Well, a lot of this censorship is voluntary and it has to do with uh, with people wanting their advertising dollars. Yeah. yeah. You know, so the bigger you get, the more success you have uh, on a platform, the more you're going to be tempted to compromise yourself. And I think the people in power realize that. That's the beauty of a materialistic society. You can count on most people to just sell out their own principles. You don't have to put any pressure on them. All right. It's um... – it's a self-policing system, and it's hard. I don't know if, if Katie has uh, – she well, she seems really upbeat, and, and I think she will probably do fine, you know, but it's really hard if you have a family or if you have people who depend on you because you're not really free to, uh, to just uh, put your livelihood at risk, even if you're not a terribly materialistic person. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, uh, I remember giving a copy of The Logic of Steel – to one of my clerks who was interested in it and I saw he had it out at his register and he was reading in it and I said oh no <laughs> no you're not going to bring that book in this building while I'm running things okay <laughs> so now I'm quoting people saying some things that uh, are not supposed to be said yeah I haven't read I haven't read that that's that's a hard one to get a hold of but I'm sure I will eventually I've, I've got my one copy. That's, yeah. That's it. it. It doesn't exist as, on my end, as a digital copy. I actually wrote that on a uh, typewriter, and they scanned it. Oh, wow. Made a document out of it. It was kind of nice of them to do that. Mm-hmm. I'll get my hands on it at some point. Well, for a while, oh, five years ago, People were trying to sell them for a thousand dollars. Some guy in Japan sold ten of them for two forty nine ninety nine a piece. Nice. All right. Yeah, I, I, I think I made uh, ninety four cents a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for copyright laws <laughs> protecting. Hey, he was just—he was a good businessman. He said this so. And this will have a cult following, but it's not going to be worth a reprint. <laughs> valuable. Yeah, that's a that's a market niche that he's exploiting. Plus, the hard copy. It's it's really for martial arts people to help them with their knife instruction. Extraction and um, 
wow, these guys still don't even have an email mm. or, website or anything. So the, the hard copy thing uh, is a big deal with boxing readers, too. Yeah. So very few uh, boxing books in the e-format sell a lot of them in print. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you for listening to part two of episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Len Lockhart. Welcome to episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. This episode was taped July 11th and will be presented in five parts. You are listening to part three. How, how is the murder bowl shaping up? Oh, the boys are doing fine. Uh, I think they clipped three of them on the 4th of July. We've got to be over 180 now. Wow. I haven't checked it in a couple of days. It's still looking like we're on pace for 350. It's it's hard for me to imagine this not being the biggest year Baltimore's ever had for murders. Wow. 2015 was huge, but it was still one killing short of 71. It was more per capita. Yeah. One was. And with our population dropping, even with them bringing in Somalis and other people that they were bringing in, we, we get a lot of Latinos here. Uh, Salvador, Honduras, and Mexico are <clears throat> where they're bringing in most of them from. And those guys are, are pretty valuable on the team, right? They, they're they doing more than their share of murders, would you say? Oh, no. No? Oh. Um, the MS-13 is in Baltimore. There's a couple of Latino murders a year. I assume these are by other Latinos. Uh, it's not much. These are mostly, at this point, just working people. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go down to the D.C. area, where MS-13 is really big, it, they're they're finding bodies on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. People just disappear. It's really nasty down there. That, that's coming to Baltimore, but it takes a while because first you have to build uh, the prey population. These people come in and they prey on other Latinos predominantly. Mm-hmm. And then after they establish that, then they'll start going after the black criminals and start edging them out of their trade like they're doing in the West and the Southwest. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to that, actually. Mm. Yeah, the East Baltimore has really been transformed. Uh, when I was interviewing people for The Logic of Steel 20 years ago, uh, I was talking to two Puerto Rican guys, and they were shocked at how few Hispanics there were in Baltimore. Yeah. This was a Hispanic city. There was a couple of Puerto Ricans. That's it. Uh, around 2000, the floodgates really opened, and large sections of East Baltimore are all Latino. Mm -hmm. And there has been some Latino and white uh, crime. I really can't talk about the one incident that I know about because uh, the guy successfully defended himself and I don't want to get him in trouble. Mm -hmm. But there was that. There was a five-on-one Two blocks from where my friend got stabbed in the neck by um, one of three hood rats, another one of which had a 
uh, a handgun. Wow. Uh, the, the Latino guys uh, were all unarmed. Oh. And again, that's when they go after facilities, there's uh, a group of these guys that have been using machetes and guns to rob wicker stores. But out on the street, there's enough of them. There's, you have a lot of population density. You have good group cohesion. There's really no reason to take a weapons charge mm. just robbing somebody yeah. when you beat them up. They didn't realize that this guy you know, was who he was. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe they will uh, change and start using more weapons on on street crimes. There's hasn't been uh, much news of Latinos and blacks mixing it up. Uh, it's, uh, you know, predominantly the blacks are killing the blacks and sidelining with some recreational uh, murders of uh, white women and older, older white guys. And, um, uh, with the Latinos, it seems to be the same thing, you know, for both of them, the, the whites are the sideline and they're pretty much going after their own. So it'll be nice when they start going after each other. Oh. I did coach a guy that was, that worked at central, uh, at the central booking facility for all the juvenile offenders. There were 500 inmates. Uh, two of them were not black. One of them was white and one of them was a skinny little kid. Uh, from El Salvador, I think, that black kids would not touch that kid. They, them and the staff were all over the white guy, tormenting him day in and day out. But nobody messed with this skinny little uh, 14-year-old uh, kid. So that, that right there tells you that they've got some an organized presence in Baltimore. Yeah, that is interesting especially outnumbered like that. and um, The staff wouldn't mess with him. The staff, the staff they knew beat better. up and torture and rape uh, these people. Uh, uh, 2013, RT put up a report that the DOJ did. The Department of Justice did their own series of interviews with juvenile uh, juveniles that were incarcerated. And they came up with huge numbers for rape by staff. Uh, talking to these kids who were apparently uh, were given assurances that they weren't going to get burned by the staff. And right. it was for information purposes. They didn't go after any of the staff. They just uh, put this report out there. So them not doing that to this, this staff, which is all black, uh, them not doing anything to this kid tells you that, um, that they're afraid of an, an organized group. Well, something that has been observed in California is that Central Americans, predominantly Mexicans, because this is already... One thing that's happened in the last 30 years is basically that Mexico is practically emptied of its... of anybody who wanted to leave has already left, and they're mostly here in California and in the Southwest. So we mostly have Mexicans, but I think you will mostly have other... Central Americans, but just to say Central Americans um, ha are kind of a wedge in the gentrification process here, and because if you remember back in like the um, in the 90s uh, South Central LA, right, was black, 
and it's not anymore. It's primarily Mexican and, and Spanish-speaking people. And up here in Northern California, it's happened as well. We, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a town called Palo Alto, but yes. that's where Stanford University is, and it's really fancy. Um, <clears throat> but there's East Palo Alto, which is just on the other side of Highway 101, and right on on the bay. And that used to be, uh, it used to be black, and now it's Mexican. And so it's just they get squeezed out and they get kind of transplanted out into the suburbs and um, it's part of the process. So maybe you'll see some of that there. Oh, uh, we have. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, they 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 use the dindus to hunt the whites, right. get the working class whites out, and don't the first gentrification initiatives in Baltimore, the working class whites that stayed that were in areas like South Baltimore, which is a peninsula and it's defensible, uh, that acted as a shield for the hipsters to come in and do their gentrification thing. Then the tax, uh, the housing taxes went up so high that these poor white people had to move and the hipsters lost their protection. And now they're starting to get hit. They're starting to be some predation. So, the uh, big expansion has been in Canton, uh, which is north of Fells Point. There's a lot of black and white crime in Fells Point, a little bit in Canton, but it's not as bad in Canton because Eastern Avenue has become the Spanish corridor. And when you're at the latitude of Canton, these black kids are going to have to come from Patterson Park north of Hopkins and cross Eastern Avenue and now go through a Latino neighborhood. And that's a whole different thing from, from going through uh, a white neighborhood. Right. So it's, it's already happening here. And then they're, uh, they're still being useful. They're still doing the government's work because they're being sent out to Baltimore County uh, to drive working class whites out of those areas and to uh, get them farther away. So you could hollow out the, the ghetto a little bit more and, you know, bring in some more rich white people. So I think it's going pretty well. Yeah. It makes me think of the comment you made about Katie McHugh going back. You said that how, how it just shows how clueless most of the alt-right is about, um, urban. Is that what the word you used? Urban, urban life. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a big, there's a, a huge difference between, blue collar white middle class and white collar white middle class and it's i think partly the it's like the college thing where everybody you have to go to college and it kind of siphons people off of the working class and into this what's now become a really useless <laughs> really useless educated class even that that's the wrong word they're not oh they're really educated but they're they're useful they consume Mm-hmm. which is the purpose for our society, and they vote, which is going yeah. to help regulate the consumption, and it's going to permit uh, violence against the really the only class of people that are capable of uh, resisting the criminal element, which is uh, your working class. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, war, it's war on the working class, yeah. and the, the people don't need it. It's... Uh, and it's been facilitated. Um, if you think of all the horror movies that young guys that are bound for college have grown up watching, the bad guys are always 
rural white guys of the working class. Always. Yeah. You know, that's it. No matter what you have to do to them. And that that just targets, you know, your, your prejudice for having a group to look at and sneer at. Right. That targets it there. And then the working class white people that are still in the city on, on top of being evil because of uh, their race, they're they're also despised because they stayed. Mm-hmm. They stayed behind. There's there's nothing that white people despise more than somebody that doesn't tuck tail and run from the enemy, because you know that's supposed to be what you do. That's the civilized way to uh, you know to make your way in the world. So I, I think there's. There's a lot of obtuseness there. There, there there's, there's this uh, orientation that the middle class and the upper class have against the working class. That, that it just predisposes them to, to not pick up things. These are white working class people who ha- are even more foreign to, uh, you know, this the white educated i i don't know what the right word is the middle class well because a lot of gotta hate somebody yeah and it's not cool to hate somebody that's of a different race Mm -hmm. because that's bad so right you know and it's the same thing with the blacks blacks hate black people (laughs) you know you have all the middle class and upper class whites hate working class whites so working class whites Hate the middle class and the upper class. So the whites hate the whites, and the blacks hate the blacks. It's uh, it's a big happy family. Yeah, it's true. Maybe it's just part of life. You know, the uh, one thing that I have uh, noticed with the uh, men that I've worked for, the really uh, the guys that really made it, and there's not too many people making a quarter million dollars a year in a supermarket business. No. But those guys that do, they start acting like the owners of a sports team Mm. where they start befriending the working class people. They become the advocate, the friend. They'll come around and shake your hand if you're the stock clerk and then cuss out the store manager, you know, in in front of a customer. Mm. And and this is really common. So there's that – there's there's just that dynamic that people have when they're on top. They want to play uh, the groups that are underneath them against each other. Right. You know? I mean, I was, I've just seen it so much. It's it's so predictable. So predictable. Thanks for listening to part three of episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. Welcome to episode 5 of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. This episode was taped July 11th and will be presented in five parts. You are listening to part 4. I I think that maybe the, um, well, you know, I'm more optimistic than you are about the culture and about how things might change. And so I think that's okay because it gives us something to talk about, right? But, I think things are going to get better. You think so? In your oh, way. Oh, yeah. In your, in yes, yes. Better things for you. Are, <laughs> things, things, are, things are going better for me every week, every month. Oh, good. I'm, I'm happy. Every year. Happy to hear that. 
<laughs> I, I like that. And if the Harm City Hood Rats take the Murder Bowl this year, mm-hmm. I get to I get to be on top. Yeah. Well, what I'm trying, <laughs> and I wish you um, great success with that. But what I'm thinking is, you know, is it possible for there to be a reconciliation between the or a, re- a renaissance, let's say, of the working class, if, if manufacturing improves, comes back to the United States, and, um, you know, I I hate to go political on you, but I think Trump has a real soft spot for the working classes, and I think it shows, you know. Well, he probably does because he's been involved in construction. Yeah. Uh, sure, he's had, uh, you know thousands of experiences with guys like big Ron, right you know, talking about grabbing women and stuff like that <laughs> well, you actually, know? You know, i don't know I, I had meant to tell you to ask to get you to ask big ron about trump and and if he's if he has any experience with somebody who's could be like a real estate developer that would be analogous to to donald trump something like that so if that comes I will, up i will i yeah. will all right he he'll generally just call them the big wigs. <laughs> yeah. It's a big job. If it's a small job, it's the boss, and it's a guy he knows. Okay. So, so yes, I will uh, well, I will inquire about that. Because what I have learned about the Trump family, um, basically the the election was like really you know it's like the Olympics or the World Cup or something. So I I was really deep into it. So. There was an interview with his older sons, Don Jr. and Eric, and he actually made them go out on the job sites and uh, drive earth movers and cut rebar with acetylene torches and things like that. So those guys have been out there. I mean, that's not how they spent their whole summer, I guess, right? But they have that experience and that interaction. And, you know, they were the boss's sons, but but how many... uh, Billionaires know how to run, uh, drive a tractor or run an acetylene torch. I don't think a whole lot of them do. Um, and I know that Donald Trump was brought up that way by his father, too. They would get out on the job sites early in the morning and make sure everything was happening. So there's something there that's different from your typical uh, bigwig, maybe. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm certain that he's going to try to do what he can um, to help the working class because if he doesn't, he doesn't get reelected for a second term. He's got a big ego. He's not. It's such a shoe in the two term president now. He would look like a putz if he didn't get two terms. So That's true. And he's, he's going to have to do what he can to shore up his uh, base there. But the the bigger economy you know that's that's one guy and his uh, his tenure there is going to pass the, the bigger economy is really misanthropic it's it's against even having people in the manufacturing process that's true know, the, yeah so robots yeah yeah so uh, who knows uh, the, the good thing is though that the one thing that always needs to be done uh, in any society and that working class guys are good at is violence. 
and mayhem. There's going to be uh, if you get more uh, unemployment because of uh, automation, then you're going to have more social unrest and you're going to have more crime. And then these guys that would have been carpenters or or, or bricklayers, masons, you could put a gun or a stick in their hand and have them go out and whack some hood rats. I think there's going to be uh, – well, you already have uh, uh, corrections as, and private security as our bigger growth industries in the U.S. right now. I think that's going to continue. And as you develop a police state, your working-class guys are going to be banging heads. And in a lot of ways, that's probably better than uh, – and framing windows and stuff. Yeah, more fun. Right, so uh, I am optimistic. That's good. I'm glad that you are in your own way optimistic. pockets of, of that all over and it could spread throughout the whole land but you've had comments from La Mano yes yes he's, he's very good I, I like getting stuff from La Mano yeah saying you know reminding us that there are lar large portions of the country that um, are still kind of like old fashioned America I was uh, I was in some of those portions of the country so two wall officers in 13 days one of them was just out socializing. He was the only law officer in that town. <laughs> and the other one was a state cop running a speed trap. That was it. Yeah. yeah that there was no need right. for it. The, last night when I got off the bus, an uneventful bus ride, there's about five of us on the bus. I get off. There is a greasy-looking Latino guy. Looks more Spanish than South American. Maybe he's... Maybe he's one of the Hondurans. I don't know. He's definitely not a Salvadoran. He's sitting under a bus shelter with this white hooker smoking crack. Oh. And then there's this white guy sitting next to the white hooker who is uh, holding the crack pipe for this black hooker who looks like she's 12 or 13. Oh and God. she's wearing almost nothing. And she's sucking on this thing, and it's lighting up. It's this blue glow mm. I get off the bus with two girls that work at the Walmart and the tall pretty one is just freaked out she sees this she's afraid of everybody she's afraid of me she's she's her head's on a swivel the whole way out I actually took my time walking to work because I didn't want to spook her mm. by uh, by gaining ground on her so I let her stay well ahead of me and the other one, the skinny little one that weighed about 90 pounds, she was really brassy. She walked in the street uh, blaring music from her smartphone, screaming rap lyrics about <laughs> killing her, uh, her people. Wow. And so she had a different strategy. Then as I start to pass the liquor store, these two drunken dwarves, seriously, these really? guys put some fake beards on them these guys could have been in the hobbit oh, wow they're about five to 250 <laughs> they're not really dwarves but they're 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 these little teddy bear guys they must have been coming from a role-playing game or something and they had their 
man beards on and they were trying to catch a bus in the middle of this secondary street where no bus has ever run before. And uh, they're asking me where to get the bus. And I told them to go back down and stop where they saw the crack addicts smoking crack <laughs> and then stand there and wait for the bus. That would have taken them all the way down to the ghetto at Sinclair and Moravia, and they would have been scrubbed from the gene pool right there. Oh, but my gosh. the other twerp uh, that wasn't asking me, he was on his phone, and he managed to get an Uber ride. Okay. So my dastardly plan did not bear oh, strange fruit. And the um, uh, uh, the pretty girl made it all the way out to the Pizza Hut, still being very vigilant. And she looked like she could run. She was maybe six feet tall. Oh, wow. So I felt pretty good about her chances. Uh, then when I got to work, there was uh, two uh, Dindu vagrants out front playing Crash Up Derby with the handicap carts. So my boss has got to go out there and take the handicap cards away from these <laughs> They were pretty tame, and he's he's a football player type, redneck. They 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 could smell it. They just they weren't giving him a hard time. And then comes this uh, this pair, actually a good looking white couple. They looked like they could be on a gymnastics team or mm. something. Uh, uh, nice looking uh, young lady that's got an hourglass figure kind of athletic and the guy's a stud you know he's like five six all muscle it's hardly wearing any clothes she's dressed but she doesn't have any shoes on uh he is uh wearing only like these speedos and what they're doing is they're going to the cigarette can it's got that long neck that you drop the cigarette butts in yeah yeah got sand in the bottom of it and he's lifting it up and they're sorting through the sand to get the cigarettes that haven't been smoked all the oh, way down to the filter. That's so disgusting. Yes. Yeah. So that really, uh, that just turns my stomach when I see that. And these are, these people are in their early twenties. Mm. At least he, he looked like a guy that, uh, was able and willing to, uh, protect his, uh, woman. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, they're poisoning themselves in various ways. But that was a nonviolent, uneventful night. Most of my nights are like that. Yeah. Well. And I've got to say, since I've been carrying Yohammer with me, the <laughs> cane that Ishmael made for yeah, me, yeah. they've uh, been giving me a wide berth. I have been getting some looks from cops, though, so I stopped carrying the knife. Oh, in case. Okay. I, and I really, I'm... I'll probably start carrying a knife again when I get back into crippled mode in the winter when, when the cold comes back. Mm-hmm. But for now, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm training every day. Um, I'm feeling real confident um, with Yohammer uh, or the T-Cane when it comes to uh, uh, dealing with any brigands out there on the, on the street. I'm so Happy to hear that. Yeah, so it's it's looking good. I really uh, enjoyed my walk to work last night. The um, extended bus service allows me to go into work later, cut my hours even more, and uh, thereby reduce my income and uh, do my part to starve the evil economy. <laughs> yeah, I remember you put a video to that effect up from Varg that uh, we should all just drop out, go galt. <laughs> 
he wouldn't put it that way. Uh, I, I am hoping that something happens to send Baltimore into a tailskin so I can actually see cannibalism on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Ron and and I have have a bet on how long it's going to take before people are getting skinned and barbecued in the street once the the welfare distribution stops. Yeah, and then they'll develop a taste for it. Yeah, you've got riots riots in three days. Thank you for listening to part four of episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. Welcome to episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart. This episode was taped July 11th and will be presented in five parts. You're listening to part five. It's an extremely high priority for our government to keep this rolling I would think it would be the last thing that goes offline. <laughs> it, it it needs to be. Yeah. They did reorganize it, so you have food stamps coming out 25 days a month now. Mm. Instead of just uh, 10. It was originally just three days. Yeah. But it, as soon as as soon as they went uh, to scanning, the computer system started crashing in all the stores because you're getting overloaded. It was too much of a bottleneck doing all your business three days, five days out of a month. So it got spread out a little bit. But after the riots in Baltimore, it got spread out to 25 days. So uh, that'll uh, that'll reduce the size of it. So it's got to be something big. It's got to be something that disables the the government. Yeah. That item that you got a link for me for the planter's plea. Yeah. I haven't read the second portion of it yet. But this whole system is based on that, what, what he lays out in the planner's play, uh, what the nuclear family was for. And he, um, he cites the book of Genesis for the purpose of the nuclear family to subdue the natural world, to wipe out the forests, yeah. to just subdue it. And – Except for the land that the federal government owns, and which is parks, and it will eventually be sold to Chinese uh, billionaires. Except for this land, it's all been subdued. So the uh, the purpose for the nuclear family, as stated clearly, was to subdue the land because you're going to immediately break off and start a new family, have as many kids as you want, even increase Mather didn't have any bad things to say about uh, uh, Congregationalist soldiers who ran away from the Indians during the 1676 war and left their women and children to be killed and captured because they could always father more children. Mm. And the father was the important thing because he was the one that was going to father all these kids. He wore the first wife out like Benjamin Franklin's dad did. Yeah. Then he wears the second wife out. You're trying to get seven to ten kids per woman. And then you move on to the next woman. But the purpose of that is really to do what Gilgamesh and Enkido did when they killed the guardian of the forest and and began uh, deforestation. 
So with with that done, uh, what else is there for the nuclear family? So uh, it makes sense to me that uh, things have evolved beyond the nuclear family. Yeah, and then I think the nuclear family has its weaknesses. I come from, uh, well, my family's from South America, and they, you know, the, those non-Anglo cultures don't really use the nuclear family as in the same way. You know, it's more of an extended unit, and you don't um, you don't break off to do your own thing. The, the way the nuclear family was used in English North America was not uh, focused on the success of the family. The family was expendable. The reason why the people that started the plantation system in North America wanted the nuclear family was it was the quickest way to conquer the natural order, to conquer the devil's uh, the devil's realm, which was the forest, and to wipe it out. And by by 1783, uh, George Washington was ordering uh, great hunts, telling all the men in certain districts just to kill everything because that's the way to beat the Indians. Now, the people that escaped uh, from the plantation system either by working off their term of service or by running away uh, like uh, message Browning he had 64 grandsons they they formed clans they went back to their Irish and Scottish roots and they formed clans all through Appalachia and across the south and out they did it again out in the Rocky Mountains and this was a more sustainable way this was families working for families. The nuclear family is just working for the system, for the consumer system. Uh, and the object of this system is to bring all the land under cultivation and uh, milk everything you can get out of it. And you want this large population growth to do that. Now, the American Indians did it was they kept their birth rate to around three. Mm. And they really didn't grow their population. They managed to keep their populations pretty stable. And so many of these Indians ended up being white because they would do anything to keep their population stable, including go out and adopt other people. They couldn't afford to let their population crash because they uh, were working on a zero population growth uh, format. Yeah, that's it's uh, something that has been pointed out for those interested in genetics and uh, Gregory Cochran, that the birth rates and not just birth rates, but survival rates of those early American settlers were just astronomical, really never matched in, <laughs> in history where a, a family might have nine surviving uh, children surviving to adulthood. Benjamin Franklin was the youngest of 14, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That was one of those cases where dad wore out the first mother and he went and got himself another one. Yeah. And this was the fate of a lot of these uh, uh, girls that were kidnapped. They were sold as replacement wives. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. But the uh, um, 
the Klan system uh, that ended up uh, going through the Appalachians is is a more natural system, and that's what you're going to see uh, all over the world. The uh, the nuclear family is really this abomination um, that. That's for a certain purpose. It's for a purpose, and it, this could be something to dive into. It's in England. I've I've been there once just for a few days, but it struck me how small it is. So they came up with this primogenitor system, I think, just because the resources were were limited, and and it's just naturally evolved there that you kind of cut people off. You know, sorry, you're the second son. You better uh, mount up on your horse and start uh, <laughs> pillaging the countryside because you can't stay here. We can't divide the property, and you know, you it's just that's just the way it has to be. Um, and that turned out to be a really effective way to to exploit resources all over the world. Well, yeah, you end up exporting some uh, talented guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're also ejecting as many of uh, the poor people from your economy as you can. There were a lot of economic crashes in England in the early 1600s that uh, encouraged the settlement of New England. And the uh, the thing with the Barbary pirates is the British very rarely did anything to try to protect their people. Mm. Across Europe, it was the same. That yeah. The governments did nothing to protect their people. I think Venice fought one. They fought one engagement with some pirates that were raiding. But for the most part, the uh, the governments didn't even try to protect their shorelines. Yeah. They because just, they, they had excess. more people than they needed. Yeah, it was excess, and that was <laughs> part of life. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, and and they just even if you have your your serfs and you really like them, they're nice and everything. You try to take good care of them. You don't really need them to raise more than two children, because that's how many people it takes to run your your property, and you don't need more than that. So uh, I I think that has a lot to do with it. And then I think in America we have this incredible abundance of material resources, huge, huge land, fertile land. And, and it was really entirely different from Europe, which had been settled for thousands of years. And I'll, I'll give you one parallel to early America to now. And then nobody sees it. The people that read the books don't see it. I, there, there's a willful blindness because it's not hard to pick out. You had the American Indians were following this zero population growth matter, managed habitat. It mm-hmm. wasn't just a wild, they didn't just hunt and gather. They did a lot of things to massage this habitat. Increased Mather wrote about the huge fish catches they would have. Mm-hmm. Message Browning, when he was hunting in the Appalachians, there were so many nut trees that these bears would gorge themselves and just lay down on a trail. And it wasn't <laughs> hard for him to kill them at all. It wow. was there was really it wasn't the kind of forest that we have now. Yeah. This was a managed forest. The, uh, um, the you had no population growth um, amongst the natives, and some groups of the natives invited foreigners in. Mm. 
And they did this to help them against other groups. Other groups, yeah. Of natives. Yeah. And these foreigners had a higher birth rate and they were more aggressive. And after they helped the group that let them in, they usually turned on the group that let them in in the first place. All right. The, we have the exact same thing going on now. We have some groups of people in the United States where the uh, um, people that make everything, that make a living and aren't just on the dole, all have zero population growth or less. Some groups of these people are bringing in more aggressive, more fertile uh, peoples from other places. Yeah. To help them against their fellow natives. It's the exact yeah. same thing. It really I, is, yeah. <laughs> and, and nobody has seen it. Nobody's going to see it. It's just going to it's, you remain know, buried there. It's out there because one of the things that people like to say, well, you know, un- unless you're a Native American, then you cannot criticize immigrants, right? And the response I've seen from the alt-right is, yeah, yeah, that worked out really well for the Native Americans, right? That's so. <laughs> right. It's right. And the the fact is, and this is, it's not the natives against the invaders. The Native American defenders were usually outnumbered by the Native American allies of the European immigrants. Right. And then- they weren't just outnumbered by the European immigrants. They were also outnumbered by the Indian allies of the European immigrants. And you're going to have the same thing here. Yeah. You have 54% of uh, the native population is going to be voting to bring in, you know, the uh, the hammer that they're going to bring down on the other part. And eventually it's going to eat them up and they'll get their just desserts. <laughs> well, James, on that note, I think I'm going to going to close this podcast. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to part five of episode five of the Crackpot Podcast with James LaFond and Lynn Lockhart.